Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Well, hello and welcome back to the podcast. Last week, we gave an intro to the Gospel of John, so make sure you go back and listen to that if you've not already done so. And we, we touched on a few things in the first three chapters. We, first of all, just gave a, a general overview of the book and then touched on a few things in the first three chapters. And then this week, we are reading John chapters 4 through 8. But I, I want to really focus on the story of the woman at the well. You may be familiar with this story already, but I would encourage you, if you haven't already read it yet this week, to go back and read it again, to read it carefully. There's a lot to unpack here, so I want to really focus on this story and walk through this together. So this is in John chapter 4, and Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee. Now, I know we've mentioned geography at a few different points in the podcast, but just to recap, it never hurts to review In the first century, remember, this entire region, this entire part of the world is controlled by Rome. It's all part of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire has different provinces, different regions, each with its own ruler under the control of Rome and Caesar. Now, looking at the region that we would think of as Israel, there were a few different provinces within this region. There was Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Judea was the southernmost of those three provinces. That's where Jerusalem was. And then Galilee was the northernmost of those three. And that's where Jesus spent a lot of his time during his ministry. Think, you know, the Sea of Galilee. And then in between Judea and Galilee was Samaria. So for Jesus to travel from Judea to Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, one thing you may have picked up on as you've read scripture is that the Jews did not like the Samaritans at all. Now, why is that? Well, there's a lot of history here. So to recap, again, to review a little bit, some of you already know this, but it never does hurt to review. And I always like to remind people or ask people, do you know this well enough to teach somebody else? Because remember, we're not just feeding you head knowledge for the sake of knowing facts. Ultimately, we want you to be equipped so that you can go out and you can share what you know with other people. That's what Christianity is all about. So do you know this well enough to teach somebody else? So with that, let's recap a little bit of Old Testament history. Remember, Israel was originally a united nation. They were one nation. They were God's chosen people. And God rescues them out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them eventually into the the promised land, the land promised to Abraham. It's a very long and difficult process, but they eventually make it. Remember, the, the Israelites rebel and sin a lot along the way. But they eventually make it to the land, and the people begin to cry out for a king to be like the surrounding nations. Now, God was supposed to be their ultimate king, but the people want a human king. And it wasn't necessarily wrong for them to want a king, but they, they wanted it on their own terms and on their own timing. Basically, they were not willing to wait for God's plans. 
But God grants their request. He gives them Saul. Saul becomes their first king. And of course, Saul is not a very good king. Then after Saul is David, whom scripture calls a man after God's own heart. And then comes David's son, Solomon. And to this point, Israel is still a united nation. They're still one nation. They're still doing relatively well. But then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes along. And he is extremely foolish. And he causes the nation to split. And remember, 10 tribes stay in the north, and it's called Israel because they retain a majority of the tribes. And Jeroboam becomes their ruler, and their capital is Samaria. Then two tribes stay in the south. It's Judah and Benjamin. They're called Judah because at this point, the Benjamites are very small in number. They were almost completely wiped out during a civil war during the time of the the judges. So it's basically Judah in the south and a few Benjamites, and they're called Judah. Rehoboam becomes their ruler, and their capital is still Jerusalem. And this division, this split, is where issues start to come up. Because remember, Israel was supposed to worship God at a designated place, at the temple in Jerusalem, where God's special presence dwelled amongst his people. But now that the nation is split, The northern tribes no longer travel to Jerusalem. So what do they do? They set up their own idols, their own shrines at Dan and Bethel. So the Jews in the south see that the northern tribes are are no longer truly following God. Now, of course, the, the southern tribes have their own issues going on, but this is where the division starts. And then remember, in 722 BC, God allows Assyria to come and defeat the northern tribes and to take them into exile. Many of the Israelites are taken into exile by Assyria. But some Israelites remain in the land. And and this is significant. In 2 Kings 17.24, tells us that the king of Assyria brought people in from foreign nations, including from Babylon and various places. The king brings in foreign people into the northern kingdom of Israel, and he brings them in to settle the region where the Israelites had previously been. Because remember, the Israelites have been deported. For the most part, there are still some remaining, but many of them have been deported. So now the king of Assyria brings in people to settle the region. So now in this northern region of Israel, you have foreign people worshiping a a variety of idols. And the few Israelites remaining, they fall into worshiping these other gods and they begin to intermarry with these foreign people. So from the perspective of the Jews in the southern kingdom, these Samaritans, as they're called, because remember, Samaria was their capital city, and sometimes you'll see the northern kingdom was called Samaria. From the perspective of the Jews, the Samaritans were these idol-worshiping half-breeds, so to speak. They've become contaminated by these other people, these foreign nations. And so the Jews begin to despise them. And then, to add to this, remember the Jews themselves are eventually taken into exile by Babylon. And then they're allowed to return after 70 years and they start rebuilding Jerusalem. But then they face opposition from the Samaritans and from the people living in this region of of the northern kingdom. So that only adds fuel to the fire. Okay, So you can see that Jews and Samaritans have a, a long history and it's not good. That then sets the context for John chapter 4, where Jesus comes on the scene. 
He's traveling through Samaria. And you see in verse chapter 6, he's worn out. He's tired. Don't just gloss over that. As Christians, I think we, we generally tend to emphasize the deity of Christ. And that's a good thing. Okay, he is absolutely fully God. He's the creator of the universe. All things were created through him. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. But we often emphasize his deity at the expense of his humanity. We, we tend to think of him and, and treat him as if he was in the form of man, but it's almost like he was kind of just floating above the ground while he was here on earth. But let's not forget that he is 100% man. He experienced fatigue and thirst and, and hunger and pain like we do. He went through what we go through. And here in this chapter, he's tired, he's thirsty, and he stops for a drink. He stops for water. And he asks a Samaritan woman to give him a drink. Now, the fact that this Samaritan woman comes to the well alone rather than in the company of other women, probably shows that she's looked down upon in her society. Why? Probably because of her marital history, which we're going to learn more about here in just a little bit. But basically, she's an outcast. She's an outcast. And, and at this time, many Jewish teachers warned against men talking with women in general. Because unfortunately, women were often looked down upon in this society. And then on top of that, you add to the fact that this woman is a Samaritan and Jesus is a Jew. And yet, through all of these things, Jesus breaks down these barriers and he asks for a drink. And you can, you can see her shock in this passage. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She can't believe it. Everything about this is scandalous. But Jesus doesn't care about societal norms or expectations. Jesus doesn't care about societal norms or expectations. He cares about lost souls. And then Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. He's offering her eternal life here. Think about that. When most people in society would have judged her or had already judged her and mocked her, the Son of God, God himself, extends her grace and offers her eternal life. Now, this poor woman, she doesn't fully know what's going on here, but put yourself in her shoes. She's probably out just doing some daily chores. She's running some daily errands. And she's probably trying to draw water without having to see anybody she knows. Have you ever done that before? I know you have. Where you're, you're out in public, you're maybe at the grocery store, and you're just trying to get things done, and you're hoping you don't run into anybody you know. And that's what this woman's trying to do. But then this Jewish guy comes up, and he starts talking about living water. And she has no idea that she's talking to the Son of God, and she has no idea what this living water is. So she says, where do you get this living water? You don't even have a bucket. And Jesus replies, everyone who drinks from this water, talking about the water in the well, the real water, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. 
In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Now, Jesus is clearly speaking metaphorically here. Drinking this living water, as he calls it, he's referring to repenting from sin and trusting him, trusting in Jesus. And doing that leads to eternal cleansing and eternal life and true satisfaction. Satisfaction that nothing on earth could ever provide. But I I love the woman's response here. She's still thinking practically. She's still thinking through the grids of having to get things done and doing her chores. And she says, give me some of this water because then I'll never have to go draw water again. She's thinking, this is great. If you can give me some of this living water, I can scratch this chore off my list forever. Think of the time I'll save. So she's still not quite getting it. But then things begin to change. Jesus begins to reveal himself to her. And how does he do that? Well, he asks her to go get her husband. And she says, I have no husband. And then, and and this is where her attitude toward Jesus begins to change. He says, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. So Jesus tells her situation exactly like it is. And this is where her attitude changes. She says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. She recognizes this is no ordinary man. But then she almost seems to kind of change the subject. She, she has to feel uncomfortable here. Jesus is bringing up some pretty tough stuff from her past. And so she brings up the topic of the location of worship. Because remember, the Jews worshipped God in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans had their own places of worship. But Jesus kind of brushes that aside. He says, a time is coming when worship will no longer be limited to a mountain or a specific location. You're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And then the woman says, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all of these things. So she continues to kind of redirect a little bit here. But Jesus replies, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. So he comes right out and tells her who he is. And again, I want you to notice there's no condemnation here. Again, society was quick to judge her, to exclude her. But what does Jesus do? He offers her living water, eternal life. Now, of course, he in no way endorses her sin. But he starts with grace. He says, repent and come to me. He starts with grace, not with condemnation. And then Jesus' disciples, they catch up with him. And when they see what he's doing, they're shocked. Jesus is talking to a woman, and she's a Samaritan woman who's an outcast. But look what Jesus tells his disciples. He says several things here, but for the sake of time, I want to focus on on one thing. He says, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. He says, open your eyes. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying there are people right around you who are ready to repent and believe in Jesus. But the disciples were too fixated on the fact that this woman was an outcast. She was a Samaritan. That's all they could see. But what did Jesus see? He saw someone who needed grace, someone who needed to hear 
the gospel. So why do I share all of this with you? Well, in past episodes, we've talked about this concept of who's your one. Basically, the idea is think of one unsaved person you know. One unsaved person. It could be a family member, a friend, a coworker. And we want you to commit to pray for and invest in that person. And ultimately to look for opportunities to share the gospel with, with him or her. So I want to remind us of that challenge. It still stands. Okay, this isn't something where we just check off a box and move on. This is a standing challenge. So I want to challenge you, who's your one? And I want to echo the words of Jesus in this passage and challenge us to open our eyes. See that the harvest fields are ripe, as Jesus says in this passage. So instead of looking at people with judgment and condemnation, let's see people the way Jesus sees them. People who need grace. People who need the gospel. And let's be willing to love the outcasts and the marginalized and the people whom society rejects. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Now, one last thing as we wrap up here. Notice how this story ends. In verse 39, it says that many Samaritans believe in Jesus because of this woman's testimony. She finally gets it. It finally clicks for her. The fact that she goes out and tells others about Jesus shows that she had taken a drink of the living water. So here's what I want us to see. When we reach someone, when we help reach someone with the gospel, it doesn't just affect their life. It affects their entire sphere of influence. Sociologists estimate that the average person can maintain about 120 relationships. Now, of course, those aren't all close relationships, but by the time you add up family, extended family, coworkers, friends, neighbors, church relationships, and so on, the average person has a social circle of meaningful contacts of about 120 people. So when you reach even just one person, it has a ripple effect. And I share that with you because I think sometimes we can feel like, what difference do I make? What difference do I really make? But if we can start by just reaching one person, we have the potential to impact up to 120 others. We can start a chain of disciples making disciples, and that is how the kingdom spreads. So again, let's open our eyes. Let's see that the harvest field is ripe. I challenge you to find one unsaved person that you can extend grace to and pray for and share the gospel with. And realize that when you help reach that person, you're impacting a much broader circle. Remember, somebody brought the gospel to you. So now who can you take the gospel to? Let's live for the task that Jesus has given us, the task of testifying to the gospel of his grace. And let's do it all for his glory.